dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. I am your host for today, Kathy. Karen and I are traveling still for the next couple of weeks, so we will be swapping around who is available for each podcast, and today you get me. We will discuss episode 17 of Yanxi Gonglue, or the story of Yanxi Palace, for today's episode. If you are enjoying our discussion, please leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us on social media or uh, head over to www.chasingdramas.com to check out our website. We return back to Ying Luo's main question at hand. Who exactly killed her sister? Fu Hong, who is now quite smitten with her, brings over the documentation of who was in the palace the day Ying Luo's sister died. It confirms that on that day, the emperor had a banquet that invited many of the aristocracy or imperial family. It wasn't only just the emperor or imperial guards who were in the palace, which means that this expands the circle of suspects for which Ying Luo must investigate. She is adamant to continue her search. Next, we get a couple of cute scenes in Changchunggong between the Empress and her maids. One night, the Empress requests for Mingyu to play the Arhu, but the music is a little bit too sad. So, Erqing tells Yingluo to try to cheer the Empress up. They joke and play around for a bit when the Emperor suddenly arrives. The maids depart to leave the Empress and the Emperor for some alone time. The next morning, it's very adorable to see the emperor pout in front of the empress saying things like, he doesn't want to go to court. Why do I have to go to court? It's really sweet to see the regal and imperious emperor turn basically into a child for like a brief moment. It solidifies the type of relationship that these two have together. They're like a really loving couple. Side note, I had this hilarious thought when I was watching the scene. I believe the screenwriter was like, hey, um, this is the imperial harem after all. We need the emperor to show up once in a while to grace the main characters. What's the point of the harem if it's just the ladies bonding? And I feel like the ladies have been like really bonding. We have the empress with Chunfei and the empress with Yingluo to the point where it's like if the emperor doesn't show up again, I would have been like, uh, who's he? <laughs> But we do get a very nice reminder that here is the official couple of the drama. I personally thought it worked pretty well because it's rare that we see such a wholesome emperor and empress relationship, at least for now. I know that sounds ominous, but let's just cherish it for now. You know, let's let's just enjoy what we have. But after we get all of this lovey-doveyness out of the way, it is time to turn back to the conflict at hand. From the very beginning of the drama, we've learned about Yu Guerin's pregnancy and the conflicts around it. It's been calm for a few months, I guess, but it's around time for her to go into labor, so we turn back to her. The Empress, out of kindness, requests for Yu Guerin to move to Changchunggong so that the Empress can help watch over her as she prepares to give birth. One day on a visit to Yu Guerin, 
Ying Luo notices that Yu Guiren has been craving only sweets and Mongolian scones or naan. This piques Ying Luo's interest because these meals are literally the only thing that Yu Guiren wants to eat. Regardless, though, the Empress brings Yu Guiren into the palace to make sure that she's well taken care of. The maids don't understand why the Empress does this, though. Ming Yu, who gets more and more annoying with each episode, I swear, openly pouts and basically destroys the Empress's beloved flowers to express her displeasure. Like, what? Wei Yingluo also doesn't really understand why the Empress decided to bear the risk of housing Yu Guiren in her palace. If anything happened to either Yu Guiren or the child, the blame would lie strictly with the Empress. The Empress, in turn, gives Wei Yingluo a very meaningful lesson. She says that she's the Empress. The women in the Imperial Harem have no family, they are alone, so it is her responsibility to take care of the women in the Harem. She must lead by example. If she was consumed by jealousy and played games in the harem, what would happen to the rest of the women? It would be a complete mess. This is the only warmth that she as the empress can give to the harem and hope that everything is peaceful. Pause on this. What a refreshing statement from the empress. Too often, we only see an empress in a drama performing quote-unquote benevolent acts towards other women because it will benefit her in the long run. Think about the Empress in Empresses in the Palace. She very reluctantly took care of Jin Huan during one of her pregnancies, not out of the goodness of her heart, but because it was placed on her. She then spent the rest of the drama plotting to kill all the other children. <laughs> in this drama, our Empress Fu Cha Rongyin acts benevolently because it is her duty and because she's a kind person. This is a lesson to Ying Luo and a reminder to me why when this drama came out, everyone was so enamored with this empress. She truly is the Bai Yueguang or White Moonlight. At this critical juncture though, the empress has to go to the temple to pray to the Buddha with the Empress Dowager and leaves her palace in Ying Luo's hands. Even though Mingyu, one of the maids in Changchungong, has been with the Empress for longer, she's too impatient and therefore the Empress entrusts Yingluo with this task. This, of course, does not sit well with Mingyu, who takes this opportunity to flaunt her authority in the palace once the Empress and Er Qing, whom the Empress brought with her on her trip, leave. Yingluo decides not to engage because it's not worth it. Timing, unfortunately, just doesn't work for anyone. And I guess that's the whole point of a drama, right? Problems. Yu Guiren unexpectedly goes into labor early with only Mingyu and Wei Yingluo around to help her. Mingyu, she continues her stuck-up ways and just orders Wei Yingluo to, like, leave. News of the labor travels quickly through the palace. Noble consort Gao or Gao Guifei hears of this and decides that she, as the leading consort left in the palace, must set an example. We'll talk about Peking Opera extensively in the next episode, so we'll table that for now because Gao Guifei is watching Peking Opera when she hears this news. 
successfully gives birth to a son, but unfortunately, the child is born with golden pupils. This whole scenario just gets worse and worse for Yuguren, poor Yuguren. Gao Guifei arrives at this time. According to royal tradition, if any child has golden pupils, the child must be put to death as the child was viewed as a bad omen. Isn't it odd that it seemed like Gao Guifei knew something was going to be wrong with the child? Hmm. News also reaches Consort Chun and Consort Xian, or Chunfei and Xianfei, who are playing Chinese Go. They hear the news and make their moves. Xianfei decides to head over to the palace to provide some assistance, because they do know how dire it is to have a child with golden pupils. Chunfei, interestingly, makes a detour somewhere else. Back at Changchuengong, Mingyu is being a complete, mm, I'll put it nicely, idiot. She blatantly orders everyone to stay out of Gao Guifei's affairs. In her mind, it's a done deal because, well, the child does have golden pupils. Disobeying noble consort Gao meant also disrespecting Manchu ancestors, so she couldn't do anything. She also was afraid that if she incurred the wrath of Gao Guifei, then the empress would get mad too. I'm going to pause there and... Uh, Kind of just try to not get angry at that statement. <laughs> Gao Guifei orders for the newborn child to be buried alive. I feel so bad for the mother. Yuguren's just had uh, given birth and she's trying to not let Gao Guifei basically kill her son. Wei Yingluo stands in to try to save Yuguren and her son by giving a rousing speech. I know that Wei Yingluo slapped Mingyu earlier to wake her up, and I don't condone any sort of physical violence, but in that moment, I really wanted to do the same, because everything Wei Yingluo said in that episode was true. If they, the maids, didn't do anything, that would be disrespecting the empress. Only the empress has the power to pass judgment, and they would be seen as weak. Wei Yingluo can't stand it anymore and runs off to try to find a solution. She quickly returns back with a case holding the Empress's official seal and orders everyone to stand down. At this point, the Emperor and Consort Xian arrive, to which they agree, thankfully, to allow for Imperial doctors to inspect the child. The Imperial doctors come back and say that they have seen the child and they've seen children with jaundice, but never one with golden pupils. This answer implicitly agrees that the child is a bad omen because they can't cure the child. Upon hearing this, Yu Guiren becomes devastated as her last hope has failed. Gao Guifei haughtily demands for the child to be killed, buried alive, just basically put to death. Yeah, this episode got quite intense. In a last-ditch effort... Wei Yingluo seizes the child and claims that the imperial doctors might not be aware of certain ailments. Surprisingly, one of the doctors agree that he might not know. It might be a mysterious illness that he's never seen. 
The episode, episode 17, ends with Gao Guifei doubling down on her arguments to kill the child, Wei Yingluo trying her best to plead her case that outside doctors might have a cure, and the emperor hesitating to make a decision. Phew, okay, that was an intense episode. I already sprinkled a little bit of pop culture in today's recap, so let's move on to history because there is a lot of it. First up is the instrument that Ming Yu plays. It is called the Er Hu. I'm surprised that we haven't seen this instrument in our two previous dramas, so we'll take time to discuss it here. Er Hu is a two-stringed bowed instrument that originated during the Tang Dynasty, so the 7th to the 10th century AD. It evolved from Xi Qin, which might have originated from the Xi people from the northern part of China. There is heavy Proto-Mongol and non-Han Chinese influence in the development of the instrument. In the Song Dynasty, a similar instrument was called the Ji Qin. The name Hu Qin was introduced and was widely used. Hu means by barbarians, and Hu from Hu Qin translates to the instrument of the barbarians. This was a common name for all instruments played by the tribes to the north and northwest of China during that time. By the time of the Ming and Qing dynasties, the Hu Qin became popular across the empire and gradually became used as an accompaniment instrument for operas. The name Er Hu is more recent. If we read ancient scripts to describe this instrument, it would be, for example, Hu Qin that is used instead. R is two, which is representative of the two strings on the instrument, and Hu is, of course, for Hu Qin, or the Hu instruments. The Er Hu now can commonly be found as accompaniments for various Chinese operas. This also meant the development of various types of arhu to fit the different styles of operas. Nowadays, one can see arhu played individually, in a group, or as a part of a Chinese orchestra. It is often called the Chinese violin. Anecdotally, for me, as a solo instrument, I feel like every piece I hear it played is like a sad song, as a solo instrument. Similar to the sentiment in this episode. In an orchestra, though, it's often a highlight of the particular song or piece because you can really give the instrument a solo section to jam out. And it's a very, very nimble instrument. So kind of think, um, you know, how you have like a violin soloist who might have their own like very nice concerto. I feel like for the arhu, you can do that as well. So the arhu now has a long, thin vertical neck made of wood, typically rosewood. There are two big tuning pegs at the top, and the two strings are attached from the pegs and go down to the base. At the bottom, or the base, is a small sound box, which is covered with python skin on the front end. The shape of the sound box is usually hexagonal or octagonal. A small loop of string, or the tianjin, is placed around the neck and strings to act as kind of like a nut to pull the strings toward the skin. It's basically like a small bridge, 
kind of acts as such, um, not quite as similar to a Western violin, but you kind of get the gist. The horsehair bow is never separated from the strings. So for a violin, the bow is placed on top of the strings, but for the arhu, the bow is essentially a part of the instrument. The bow passes through the strings. So that's why when you see kind of the arhu stored, you'll see the whole package, the bow and the instrument or the, the, I would say you could think like the body section versus with the violin, the bow goes one place and then the uh, actual violin goes another. Overall, though, the instrument is very lovely. And yes, there are some great pieces out there. I remember walking down the streets of old Beijing a couple years ago. Yes, that still exists. And yes, it's touristy. But you'll see some old guys just playing the arhu, jamming out, and it's a good time. My mom, interestingly, though, is a huge fan of Mongolian huqin. The Mongolians and other minorities in China still play folk music using their traditional instruments, and those are really great too. She definitely prefers uh, huqin to the arhu, so I listen to quite a bit of that whenever I go home. All right, next topic. What I want to discuss is the whole concept, again, of the women in the imperial harem not being able to eat at the same table with the emperor. In this episode, the emperor heads to Changchengong and eats some pastries with the empress. It should be a meal, but what I see on the table is just some pastries. In adherence to etiquette, the empress doesn't sit to eat with the emperor. This is true to history. The emperor always sat alone at the table. The servants, or in this case the empress, would be the one to bu cai, or place the selected food onto the emperor's plate for him to then eat. If you'll recall, in Empresses in the Palace, this was also the case. Very, very rarely did any person sit at the same table as the emperor. In addition, for Qing Dynasty emperors, they could only eat three bites of any one dish. This was, of course, to prevent poisoning. Even if the emperor really enjoyed the dish, tough luck because three bites is all he was going to get. It would then go back into rotation and not be served for some time. This becomes a little plot point later on in the drama when someone tries to persuade the emperor to eat more than three bites. I won't say who, but it happens. Trying to research this, I also went down a rabbit hole on how much food was allocated to each level in the imperial harem what holidays they could eat in a room with the emperor, and how many dishes were with each meal. Let's just say that uh, there is or was an archive that recorded the agenda, food, and habits of the Qing dynasty emperors. This archive included over 12,000 recorded days from Emperor Kangxi in 1671 to the last emperor Pu Yi in 1910. So there's a lot of details available on the emperor's daily habits, what he ate, when he slept, all that stuff. Very fascinating. I didn't read any of like the actual pages, but it was quite interesting to see um, kind of the summaries of, for example, what they could or couldn't eat with their three bites for the meal. All right, next up, we will talk about the Hai Sheng Bao Er Siku, which is essentially the 
um, Mongolian naan or bread that Ugarin had such a craving for. It again is just essentially pretty traditional Mongolian naan or like flatbread. The typical ingredients include flour, milk, some sort of shortening um, in which today you would use butter, but back then it wouldn't be butter and some salt. I'll talk about this dish a little bit more in the next episode because I found a pretty interesting article on the geography with regards to the bread and where Ugarin is from, which kind of plays a factor in what happens in the next episode. Regardless, you can still find this type of bread if you venture over to the Mongolian steppes. Inner Mongolia is a province in China and people have posted about eating these. So hopefully, um, if you ever get the chance, let us know how it tastes. Next up, we will talk about seal script or zhuan shu. In the episode, the empress teaches Yinglo a word, hou, which in the context means empress. The script she uses, however, is zhuan shu or seal script. Now we've discussed kai shu, which is standard script, and briefly xing shu or running script in the last episode. Here we will discuss zhuan shu. This is an ancient style of writing that evolved during the spring and autumn and warring states periods or chun qiu zhan guo. So think about like 8th century BCE, probably like a little bit later than that, but definitely in the first millennia BC. It evolved from the Zhou Dynasty Bronze Script, which evolved from the earliest of Chinese writings, Oracle Bone Script. The name Zhuan Shu, according to Wiki, means Decorative Engraving Script. There are several different styles of seal script, such as large seal script or small seal script. Different states during that period had independently evolved different writing scripts, all kind of sort of similar, but there was enough differences. Small seal script or xiao zhuan shu was the formal script of the state of Qin and became the unified script after the Qin conquered the other states to, of course, create the Qin dynasty. I personally enjoy learning more about these different texts because I can trace the written language from thousands of years ago to the words we use today. It's really cool to see. In the drama, we see the word ho, which is made up of the mouth and the hand. The modern day word or regular script word looks a little bit different than the zhuan shu word. The hand covers the mouth on the left rather than the right, but that's one of the words that I can probably recognize if I had to read it. The written words for zhuan shu, in my opinion, seem kind of much more flowy. It's hard to describe, but the strict lines in regular script aren't really there in seal script. So typically we read now regular script or kai shu. If you're able to, then you can read xing shu and sorry, Sometimes I can't really get cursive or cao shu, but zhuan shu is very formal, but not used anymore. It is currently practiced as a form of calligraphy and people really do use it for like formal occasions and it's often used on seals, hence why the name seal script. But um, for example, for me, I wouldn't ever like encounter it in daily life. And this now brings us to our last topic, 
the golden pupils. So why was Gao Guifei able to promptly, quote unquote, dispose of the child after seeing that it had golden pupils? Was there really a tradition in killing these children? Unfortunately, yes. The practice for the Manchu royal family dates back to the days of the Jurchen tribe, before the founding of the Qing dynasty. The Jurchen tribes were in constant warfare or battles with neighboring tribes and clans, so they were very wary of outsiders. If a baby was born with pupils different from the normal dark brown, then the tribes or tribe leaders deemed that the baby was an ill omen and a threat to the prosperity of the tribe. They basically viewed deviations from the norm as evil and, yes, disposed of the child. Now to the Qing dynasty. The royal family paid close attention to newborn babies. They were very superstitious and believed in reincarnation. Any omen could mean prosperity or devastation. For the royal family, this was even worse because any of these omens could potentially, quote unquote, jeopardize the legitimacy of the royal family or the royal bloodline. They couldn't have children or future emperors with different colored pupils. That was a bad omen because, you know, the child might destroy or potentially destroy their world. So whenever a child was bound to be born with pupils that weren't normal, I don't think golden was, you know, possible, then the child was usually killed. Sometimes it did involve live burial. This wasn't just for the royal family. Apparently, regular families did this, too. We will talk about jaundice in the next episode uh, because they surprisingly did bring it up during this episode, but that plays much more into the resolution for next week's episode, so we'll just leave it at that. I did read an article that made a point that, in a way, this prophecy or superstition proved true because men with different colored pupils did basically destroy the Qing dynasty. It just wasn't really homegrown. The eight-nation alliance filled with Westerners laid siege to Beijing in the 19th century. Maybe the superstition proved true, just not in the way the Manchus thought it would. Well, on that sad note, that is it for this episode. Man, I'm sorry, kind of a Debbie Downer of an episode, but there's just a lot of history to talk through, um, which is why we decided to cut it just to this episode. Next week's episode will be just as gripping, and then we will get kind of a little bit of respite from all the craziness of childbirth. If you are looking for sites to watch TV and you're in the U.S., head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. You can stream it through the website Jumo, X-U-M-O, or else access it on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. They've also recently launched on Sling TV, so please do check them out. Again, all of this is free. Thank you for joining us today. We will catch you in the next episode.